Well, hi, everybody. It's the Week in the Tackle podcast, where we look back at the previous week in the world of football and or soccer. We ignore the West Ham game and we talk about other things. Uh, I'm Tom Rennie. Alongside me for today's programme is your friend of mine, a man who's definitely not going to take the piss out of me for the next half an hour or so mm. of the programme. Yes. Uh, it is Sirius XM presenter, uh, Apple TV star, impossibly youthful-looking broadcaster, it's Brian Dunny Dunseth. How are you, mate? You okay? I'm good, Rennie. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. This is one of those days that I actually look forward to joining you here on Week in the Tackle um, because it's the day of reckoning. It's the day of reckoning where in the last three and a half months, actually, no, I take that back for the last year and a half, you've been very, very excited. And even moments where you weren't too happy with David Moyes and the Moyes Zaya and the way that you were playing and the tactical setup and maybe some of the performances of individual players. There was still a tinge of hope. There was still a lifeblood of Tom Rennie loving his amos. Uh, but I just couldn't believe what I saw between just mucking it up with the ticket situation on the phone slash London yeah. Stadium to then the wide shot at halftime where Rebecca Lowe and company decided that you know what? It's probably worth catching this mass exodus after the first 45 minutes and then just panning that beautiful, gorgeous, empty, white-seated stadium. Um, some would say you hate to see it. Some, yes, you would wouldn't say. know, would you? Because you love no. to see it. Um, I was getting so many messages during the game from uh, friends of mine or former friends that are Arsenal fans, <laughs> uh, some that will be well-known to our listeners and others that wouldn't be. Uh, and I also got six messages from Brian Dunseth, all that went unreplied to because I was so <laughs> unbelievably furious. Um, number one, strong finish to that half. Number two, inevitable. Number three, Moyes in. Number four, why does Rice uh, clap so weird? He does. <laughs> he goes like good. this. He goes like this. That was this. my favorite. Just, yeah, it was just so with, weird. With like one steady hand, like a drum yeah. and one swing. But it was hand. like a it was like a weird hand thing that was happening. But in the end, uh, when I wouldn't respond to Danny after an hour of messages, <laughs> I just got a um a, a kind of like a shrug face. Just like, no, yeah. okay, no no reply. I'm sad mm -hmm. about this. Um, I did take some serious grief, and why not? That's what it's all about. Um, look, I do want to talk about West Ham a little bit, and I'll give you my views on it. I also want to hear Dunny's, because uh, I know mine quite well, though maybe some of our listeners don't. Um, and we'll also talk about the other side of things, too, that Arsenal have gone from their victory over Liverpool last week, which we agreed on the show was probably their best performance of the season, mm -hmm. and they didn't then buckle in the next game, which has been a narrative of Arsenal at points this season. Um, you could say they got better. I don't think they did get better performance-wise, but of course, results-wise, they did. And can I just say on the Exodus thing, um, the picture that they were getting, there are people that left the bowl. So I think you've been in the bowl, people have been at the bowl before. Um, you have to cross bridges to get off of the kind of site, off the island, if you like, towards the station. That big mass of people you see in that shot, they're all going for a cigarette or a beer. What mm. happens is at the stadium, there are outside areas on the island that you go to to get a drink and you can smoke in those areas. So I think a lot of people needed a cigarette, even those that had never smoked before in their lives suddenly went through a full pack of Marlboro Red um, at halftime in that game. Right. Other cigarettes are available, but less strong, I, I believe. Probably vaping blueberry or something these days. These wimps um, have real tobacco, you loser. James Dean wouldn't be considered cool if he was hopping on a... Got a peach vape, you tosser. Have a cigarette. 
all cigarettes are bad. Don't smoke them at all. Um, but that's what people are doing, right? So, like, there's a few that left, of course, and there's lots mm. that stayed in the concourse or in the pub areas. Um, but I, there was a, a lot of images of it. They're a bit like, it, no, it wasn't. Uh. 20,000 people didn't leave at that point. About yeah. 3,000 did, and the rest stayed in the pub. Um, uh. And then when the fifth girl went in, they definitely did leave. So uh, that annoyed me a little bit. And also, the whole conversation about if you're a real fan, you don't leave. Firstly, f*** off. Uh, sorry, Tim. Uh, secondly, um, it's always a comment made by people who don't pay to go to games. And look, I know that's rich for me because I very rarely pay to go to a game. Uh, but also, I don't criticise people for leaving early. So anyone who did want to have that conversation, uh, my retort is quite simply, oh, f*** off. Uh, sorry, Tim. Um, right. <laughs> Away from all that, I do want to do a bit of West Ham chat. But Dunny, you watch the game and you have had to, because of me, suffer through a lot of West Ham over the last couple of years that maybe yeah. you probably would not have watched. Um, what did you make to that game? Did you see that coming? How good were Arsenal and how bad were West Ham? Ooh, a lot to unpack there. <clears throat> I thought Arsenal were superb from the opening minute. Um, I am of the belief that when David Moyes put that starting lineup out officially, Mikel Arteta cranked that group of players up even harder. Uh, because when you're taking outside backs and using them as left midfielders, when you're leaving attacking players on the bench and not even turning to them and giving them an opportunity to even try to score a goal, um, I think the the signal was sent very clearly from Moisiah and company um, that this was going to be a game where we tried to do our best to keep it nil-nil at halftime. And then maybe we can introduce some game changers if we even consider them game changers. Um, I, Cause I truly don't believe he trusts anybody on his bench at this point that he is uh, capable of impacting the game and maybe sneaking out a result. Listen, the, the names on the back of the jerseys and the players themselves, it's very easy to say Arsenal is by far a better team. I think it does a disservice to West Ham to an extent because currently West Ham aren't having a bad season and they're doing a great job. I think managing European competition. But the reality is that I think they weakened themselves in the January transfer window. I still am struggling to wrap my head around the context of understanding what the upcoming summer transfer window is going to look like because of the necessity of understanding that you've got, what, five to seven players that are at the end of their contracts, mm -hmm. and you let two guys go as well in January, and you didn't strengthen in positions that you needed to strengthen, and yet you strengthen in a position that you didn't need to strengthen with Calvin Phillips joining. It's it's just so questionable. And I don't know if this is a Sullivan thing. I don't know if this is a Moisaya thing. I, I, I struggle to comprehend whoever the puppet master is behind the scene. The planning system doesn't seem to match up with what this group's needs are right now. This is just me from the outside looking in with no skin in the game whatsoever. Uh, but I thought it was it was very easy for Mikel Arteta to amplify his group the moment that that starting 11 came up. I will never fault players for effort. I think it does a disservice to the professionalism, but my God, they were far outplayed. I mean, they, from the opening whistle, from a competition standpoint, that was as dominant of a performance that Arsenal could possibly put in. Um, and there were some incredible goals, by the way, some incredible goals, mm. but there was, which th one was your favorite Danny? Which oh. was the one you enjoyed the most? Clap everybody, loose hand clap. 
Declan Rice celebration. Sorry, guys. Sorry. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I love how they're the the broadcaster in the stage is like, "What a sign of respect from Declan yeah. Rice." And then there's a fan going like this. Yeah, like that whole thing, right? Let me just say this as well, because I've I've been to games where uh, I didn't go to this one this weekend. Thankfully. I do this to Renny if I saw Renny. Hey, yes, it, he's uh, for those that are listening on the podcast. He is just um, let's just say shaking a broom at me whilst cleaning it at the same time. Um, he did get some boos, but he also got some cheers, and of course there is a mixed response to Declan yeah. Rice coming back. It certainly wasn't Frank Lampard levels, but also when a former player has left you for whatever reason. I personally don't give them any response because once they've left, they've left. When they've retired, let's have a conversation about it. But at this particular time, he's just an opponent player and I wish them nothing, really. Not well, not ill, just nothing. Um, so some people don't feel that way. Some people thought he should have got um, a raucous round of applause as a trophy-winning former captain of the club. Other people think he can go f*** himself. Sorry, Tim, because he, he left and really did push for that move to Arsenal. So... You're all entitled to that. And again, I, I don't think people should be criticised for that. I don't think anyone went too far um, in it. But yeah, look, I, look, I've got loads to say on West Ham and not I'll, I'll try and cut it down because I could feel the 40 minutes we've got. But I did just want to ask you on the Arsenal perspective because I don't really want to comment on that a great deal. What did it mean in terms of uh, title race, in terms of mm. taking them seriously, considering City won? And they've got these new signings, uh, Erling Haaland and Kevin De Bruyne coming back in uh, and being pretty impressive. You've got Liverpool still without Salah, um, riding that kind of Klopp farewell tour um, thing at Anfield and beating Burnley. It was all dramatic and it was typical Klopp football and they went on to win 3-1. And everyone thinks it's City, then it's Liverpool, then a big gap, then Arsenal. If you go to Opta, who do the kind of percentages, um, City's chance of winning the league is like 60 Liverpool's is like 25 and Arsenal's was like 8% or something mm. like that going into the weekend. Um, of course, that's not eyeball test. That's a kind of data uh, thing. And they wouldn't have had 6-0, I'll tell you that. Um, what does it say about Arsenal's title credentials and their ability to win the competition? Not just this, but their last few weeks. Oh, that's a great question. So I guess my 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 perspective on Arsenal right now is drastically different than last season. Last season at this time, what they were six points clear, and it was theirs to lose, and they and they certainly lost it. That's clear. But this year, I think the pressure changes because they know they don't have the lead, and I think that's something different. I think that's something that you're cognizant of that you're in the race and that you need results, but <clears throat> your your results are also dependent on other results. Whereas last year, it was about your results and your results alone. Everyone else was chasing you. Um, so what what I was thinking coming out of the blip that was kind of the holiday period and into January was that if the right player was available, Edu and Arteta would bring that player into the squad. Obviously, whatever financial fair play, profit sustainability, whatever that looked like for Arsenal at the time, the move wasn't available for them to make. But with Gabriel Jesus going down, I think Mikel Arteta finally figured out a way to unlock the best of Kai Havertz. And that was to give him more of a free role. And maybe the reintroduction of Jorginho in a more prominent sitting role alongside Declan Rice was beneficial enough to let Odegaard and then Kai Havertz find a little bit more freedom. And the idea of a false nine. 
But I also think bringing on Troussard, um, and and that's the one player I think that we can debate continuously, should he be a starter? Because he certainly has the quality to be a consistent starter at Arsenal. Mm. But he's also a fantastic impact player. So you kind of walk that fine line of, do I start him? Do I not start him? Because he's going to be a guy off the bench that makes a difference. My fear for Arsenal is that the same amount of depth that you proposed a second ago, $500 million basically coming into the side worth of player for Man City between De Bruyne and Erling Holland. I mean, they, they are right now flying and can just engineer chance after chance. And I just think there's there's so much depth right now at Liverpool that Jurgen Klopp can turn to. Not necessarily guys that are absolute starters, but guys that now have proven that there's not a drop-off when they come on the field, including some really talented youngsters. Mm. Um, and, I, and I feel like the, the mistakes that they made at Arsenal was kind of those once-a-season type of blips, or at least I, I, I'm wondering if it's a, a once-a-season. Uh, but again, for Arsenal, my, the reason why I lay this out, it's the same concern, is when they start to have injuries later in the season of impact players, when they start to just turn, and no disrespect, but turn to the players that they're introducing off the bench, not named Trossard, all of the rest, that's where I think that's going to be the biggest challenge is having the quality of player where the level doesn't drop off significantly. Because I think when it's all said and done, all of us can name the starting 11 for Mikel Arteta pretty much nail nine out of 11 players every single time. Um, And that's a testament to how good these players are for him. But at the same time, fearful should they have one or two key players go down that they could be in a boatload of trouble. I think for me, briefly on the title race, is that if I was looking at those starting 11s that you mentioned, I'd probably give Liverpool the nod as better goalkeeper between Liverpool and Arsenal. I'd probably just shade for Arsenal's defence over Liverpool because I think the two centre-halves are really good, but there's a debate to be had there. I think I'd look at Arsenal's midfield being better than Liverpool's, but Liverpool's attack being better than Arsenal's. The trouble is, in all those categories, I'd pick Manchester City. And that is going to be your problem moving forward. The quality of the squad, the unfairness of the City setup, and to put a, a, a final point on that, a final bow on that, and how utterly unfair it is, this Man City model that I think is ruining English football and ruining European football. And I want Arsenal and Liverpool to be champions because it's the best thing that can happen to the league because it might be another title that needs stripping in 18 months' time. Um, and and uh, and that's something we don't want to see. Um, but you need them to win it because what, it, what what's gone wrong with football is the way Man City have this business model. And as much as you don't want these two teams to win it, the more they win it, the more hopeless it's going to seem. So you kind of got to support those teams in the end. Um, on West Ham, right? Now, I've done this a few times now. We did it on the football show on Monday on Sirius XMFC. Um, I always get calls from our, our colleagues at Talk Sport for me to go on their shows for two reasons. Number one, um, Everyone else said no. No, number one is that West Ham have won a game. <laughs> number two, West Ham have been embarrassed. And I got to go on my favourite show, Hawksby and Jacobs on Monday, Andy and Paul together, which is always great to, to jump on with them. Uh, and the podcast of that is available right now if you want to hear this rant without swearing. Um, but I just said to him at the top of it, West Ham must have been crap this weekend because you called me. Uh, and that's how bad they were. They called me. And look, I've done this a few times now, and I'm trying to... I do remain a bit philosophical about it at this point, a couple of days down the line. 
because as you know, I'm not fully Moise out, yeah. but I'm not fully Moise in. Yeah. I feel so indifferent to it at this point because I can really appreciate and respect the incredible job in the macro that he has done at West Ham United. And I saw a great point uh, in a thread from, from Jacob Steenberg, the Guardian journalist and West Ham fan a couple of days ago, saying that if you really look at it on balance, it's probably Moyes that elevates West Ham. It's mm. not West Ham that elevates Moyes, which I thought was a really interesting point. Interesting. And I think is probably just about right. Um, it doesn't have to be right moving forward, depending on the next appointment and the money spent. Uh, but I think it's probably right. But to this game, it was statistically the worst home embarrassment in the history of West Ham United. It equaled their biggest ever home defeat and was their biggest ever home defeat at the Bowl of Disappointment since moving there. Um, it was appalling. It was an appalling, appalling performance, but it was one that had been coming for some time. And what's interesting about this is that there were some really bad individual displays from mm. Kurt Zuma, who can't bend his legs, and that's getting worse and worse week on week. I think he can't play anymore, certainly in uh, in the big games. Uh, Thomas Socek, who barely touched the ball, who ambles around like a giraffe lost in the Serengeti. Uh, terrible on the day, um, even though Ariola made one brilliant save from Trossard, giving away that penalty, which swung the game totally. Was really poor, not the first time he's done that. Um, I, I think Calvin Phillips coming on proved again there was no reason to bring him in on a short-term loan. He is not a short-term fix. He is a long-term problem for somebody else. That's a terrible signing. And why do that and, interview? Why do that? The timing of that interview is just so worthless. Non-stop media of Calvin Phillips for two days. Yeah. And he was never going to play anyway. It's time for Calvin Phillips to just let his football do the talking. And frankly, what he's saying is not worth listening to on the field or off the field, frankly. So that was a mess. So you've got all those problems, right? And I'm not dismissing the individual bad performances because, you know, Moyes was right post-game that some of these guys didn't do their basic jobs. You're not marking from corners. You're not covering the ground. Mm. You're not putting tackles in. Um, your headers away are simply amateur. You know, all the individual performances were really, really bad. But away from that, West Ham set up exactly like that in every game. West Ham set up not too similar to that when they beat Arsenal at Emirates Stadium in December, which I think is why Arsenal took West Ham so seriously in this game. They do not play like anyone else in English football. What they do is zero pressing. They sit off intentionally. They do not close you down. They low block and stay central. And they do not want the ball. They don't want it. They don't want to chase you. They don't want to gas themselves out. And I kind of thought for a while that was because they were also having Europa League and Conference League and so many games in a small squad. But they've barely played a game in the last kind of six, seven weeks. Europa's yeah. been open for ages. Conference League's open for ages. Um, this is just how they play. And this is why I think people who don't watch them or pay to watch them like I do find it difficult to understand because on paper it has been fantastic. But I go to games, Danny, and they don't touch the ball oh, for yeah. ages and ages and ages. And not just against City and Arsenal and Liverpool. They don't touch the ball against Bournemouth. Mm. They don't touch the ball against Brighton. And then if they can turn it over quickly, get it to Paqueta to pass the Kudus to score, it's how they beat Man United. Uh, you know, 100%, yeah. Man, you made the ball for 80% in that game. Yeah. Two times Paqueta got it, passed it to someone and we scored, right? Infuriating, so it's, yeah. It's intentional and it has been successful, but it's unwatchable at times. And 
I'm not asking here. I don't think West Ham fans are asking. And this is why this debate becomes so annoying. I actually had a bit of a go at uh, the Arsenal winger, my mate Eddie McGoldrick, before the game, because he asked me, what do West Ham fans want? And I was like, f*** off, Eddie. Sorry, Tim. <laughs> uh, because, like, no, we don't, we don't want Pep's Barcelona, but I also don't want this. And yeah. if there's 10 stops on that line, we're currently at number one or two. If Guardiola's 10, get me to four. Get me to the Lingard era Moyes, the mm. Europa League season Moyes. Get me that. We know we can do it. and People are happy again. But right now, it's so bad and so negative and so anti-football. What fans want here is a more aggressive approach. They want an offensive plan and they want to have left the stadium having enjoyed themselves. And of course, they want to win. Of course, winning is the most important thing. Win this game. We're not having this conversation. But without the win comes this. And this, Danny, was such a humiliation. It's not a surprise then that all that David Moyes are going to sign a new contract, which was greeted with uh, probably indifference, but an acceptance. That's mm. now off the table for no hold on. Prove it because he's got to prove it, hasn't he? He's, he's not the only one. I mean, you're right. And, and now we're at a... I think we've already passed the junction of no return with how we how we verbalize exciting football, how we want to see exciting football. Because there as much as we statistically infuse now the conversation of, you know, stats and all, you know, XG and percentages and all all that stuff that has its place, it still does boil down to the eyeball test. And these visual markers are so incredibly simple. And I would say what you're talking about is the same for what's happening at Crystal Palace, has been the same thing that's happened all season long at Manchester United, is that what we're listening to the manager verbalizing, it is not matching up to what we're seeing. And there's success, and then there's failure, and then there's something in between. And that malaise is somewhere in between that we're talking about. And I think we could also throw maybe like Roma and Jose Mourinho into that type of conversation as well, mm. where there is absolutely a way to win football matches. There's so many ways to win football matches. But the reality is that you want to be exciting. Like you want to be fun. You want to be, you want to be the team that everyone talks about. And I use that, that Crystal Palace moment because a week and a half ago, they get absolutely slaughtered at Brighton. And I, it's not about the loss, even though it's about the loss. But it's the way that Brighton plays is what Crystal Palace fans want to see out of their team. Because they're saying, hold on, wait a second. Very similar structures, at least a few years ago. Why are they playing so much more fluid, so much more attacking, with so much flair, with so much creativity, with so much with f***ing balls? Sorry, Tim. Um, and then you look at the way our teams play at times and you're like i don't i don't i don't want to chase i don't want to watch my team chase the ball for 90 minutes i don't want to just kick the out of the ball sorry tim now i'm going and 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 just chase it down the way like even watching the game for united the other the, the other day i'm 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 watching them at 1-1 low block defend their first line of contention is like 35 yards out of their own penalty area and, you know it's 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 just it's not making sense. And then I was texting with friends. It's like, oh, what's the tactic? Kick the living 
get out of the ball, sorry, Tim, and hope Rashford or Garnacho can get on the end of it. Mm. And it is extremely effective. But that's not what we want. And Until it's not. This kind of leads back into the conversation of me trying to convince you about these modern-day football fans that these now kids, my my son's ages, it's not about the loyalty to the club. It's about the loyalty to the excitement of the way that they watch a team play. And and that's where we're kind of in between right now. It's all of us, well, you're, you are completely different than I am, obviously, with your West Ham loyalty and growing up and being um, uh, since day one, whereas... My fandom for Manchester United was based on how much fun they were to watch in the early 90s. And because I was exposed to my friend whose family was from Oldham and who's sending VHS tapes over. And we'd wear those things out. But it was based on, that's how I started to fall in love with the team was based on how much fun they were to watch. That's what's happening right now is for these teams that are really difficult to watch, that it doesn't line up philosophically with what the manager is saying versus mm-hmm. what we're seeing on the field. It's it's hard to swallow, and it goes back to what we've been debating with David Moyes, the Moisaya, for the better part of now, what, 14 months. If you sack him, if you walk away from him, I fully understand why. I would say the same thing right now with Roy Hodgson. 100%, I understand why. But who are you going to bring in? Mm. And what does that plan look like? Because right now, I think what we're effectively saying is that Wherever the debate is, does West Ham does does David Moyes raise West Ham or does West Ham raise David Moyes? If Graham Potter took over tomorrow, how does that change the way West Ham plays? Significantly changes the way West Ham plays. Mm. I mean, you, you, we talk about Deserbi, talk about Potter. You can even talk about Unai Emery. All these levels of how much does the manager change the team? I think now is a very similar conversation to what if with regards to your squad, West Ham, and what we're talking about with Crystal Palace and their complete show and collapse that we've seen defensively over the last couple of matches. Sorry, Tim. I mean, and briefly on that, if you are to bring in someone like Graham Potter, which, you know, I've not got insider information or whatever, the bookies think so, but the bookies have got a finite market to pick from. Um, Graham Potter comes in. This is why it's such a big conversation here. If he comes in, Zuma can't play for Graham Potter. Thomas Socek can't play for Graham no. Potter. I'm not convinced James Ward-Prowse can play for Graham Potter. Vladimir Sufal couldn't play for Graham Potter. Um, I'd have my doubts about Antonio playing for Graham. I mean, look, what I'm saying is it would require a massive squad overhaul and are West Ham up for that? Because if they are not, that's the wrong appointment. Uh-huh. And are you bringing someone yeah. in then to take David Moyes' squad and add some of the aggression. You mentioned it earlier on. Just show me some fucking balls. Sorry, Tim. And we're seeing sitting off, listlessness. I want to see life. I want to see energy. And I'm not seeing... And if you just add energy to that team, I think there'd be a difference maker. But I sit in a 62,500-seat stadium, which is where the, you know, the Palace comparison is slightly off. Palace do not get 60,000 bums on seats, for some of the game at least, to watch it. Um, and when you get that, it's so hard to harness that crowd. It's easy uh, to harness 20,000 at Selhurst or 11,000 at Bournemouth because a small crowd can be drawn into an atmosphere. 
it's incredibly hard to make that disjointed stadium uh, work in unison to encourage mm. the team. I have seen it. Sevilla or Leicester or victories over Man United or Liverpool. They've had some incredible wins where the atmosphere has been great. But if you don't touch the ball and you've not had a shot and it's been an hour, even without the score being 6-0 and your former f***ing captain scoring his best goal of his career, double sorry, Tim, um, you know, then it, it's very difficult to move on from there. Uh, mm. Listen, we're going to move on from there because I think that's well covered. I do want to ask you a few more questions about a few more stories uh, this weekend. And in fact, um, I might start with this because I think it's such a brilliant story. Uh, AFCOM. Um, I do want to ask you about AFCON because um, Cote d'Ivoire, I love saying it that way, Ivory Coast, victorious. And the story of it is just so wild. Um, look, we haven't covered it in amazing detail, all right? So I'm not going to throw you under the bus and ask you to name your top three players from AFCON or anything. But the story of it being won by Ivory Coast is absolutely amazing. So um, they lose two of their group stage matches, including one against Nigeria, who they go on to beat in the final. They sack the manager, Jean-Louis Gasset, um, and essentially have a caretaker manager in, manager in charge for the rest of the tournament. Uh, they're on the brink of elimination multiple times during the knockout stages. They win a penalty shootout in one of them. Another is a 122nd minute winner to get to the final, the Allaire goal in the semi. And then in the final, um, it's 1-1. 80th minute at home against Nigeria, a better squad, the mightiest nation in Africa, the biggest population of a nation in Africa, and Seb Allaire just back from testicular cancer and being bombed out of West Ham by David Moyes, there's always a link, um, scores the winning goal in this game. I mean, Dunny, you have sat through Arsenal all or nothing. You have even watched some of that incredible Tottenham documentary where they came sixth or some. Sorry, Tim. <laughs> this is the stuff. I'm never going to watch it. This is the stuff that deserves a proper. Let's get um, let's get Tarantino or whatever on this. Let's get the, let's get the real movie makers on this because yeah. this is the stuff I want to see made into a movie. Incredible tournament, an incredible finish. Tom Rennie, I didn't watch a single second of Afcon. I didn't watch a single second of the Asian Cup as well. No, to uh, be fair, we've got no time to watch the Asian Cup. Did you see the magic trick, though? That was pretty cool. So I did. It was his own picture, and uh, it turned into a really odd S for some reason. Yeah, I didn't um, get that. Yeah, so uh, the only thing I, 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 I gathered out of the disaster for the Asian Cup was Jurgen Klinsmann was Jurgen Klinsmann-ing once again. Uh, Sebastian Hilaire was the most incredible story. Just because if you think about the timeline from really good striker, bombed out of West Ham, still odd, sold to Ajax out of all the teams, they forget to register him for Europa League. He gets a huge move to Borussia Dortmund. And within the first five days, he tests uh, somehow, uh, not test positive, somehow he's diagnosed with testicular cancer, overcomes all that. And then this story, I read about it. I actually watched the goal on Twitter X on my burner account. Uh, but did not watch a single second of the tournament at all outside of that. But I would agree with you. And by the way, it's okay to tell people that you didn't watch something. Not yes. you specifically, Rennie. But like, I didn't watch the Super Bowl. Don't at me. American football is f***ing rubbish. Sorry, oh, Tim. Pretty good. Um, but yeah, th this was... For, for everyone out there, Like you don't always have to have an opinion on everything. Just a quick reminder, because I've watched some of these clips 
where it is such a incredible broad stroke of zero knowledge with maybe a tinge of an opinion out there and it's cringe fucking worthy sorry Tim. yeah um so yeah that's just me uh but yeah great stories nonetheless and i agree with you it's it's kind of crazy to figure out how 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 these geniuses with regards to movie and tv storytelling pick and choose which teams that by the way quick little side note i don't know if you saw apple partnership they are now you know everyone that does like the the f1 series mm-hmm. drive gonna, to survive they're gonna do this with major league soccer what's the title is it snappy i don't remember the title i'm just telling you the reference point you wouldn't watch it anyways what do you care i might watch it if you're in it if you're oh, in a few yeah. scenes I don't know. I, I haven't. I haven't signed an NDA, so um, that's the that that's what I would assume I'd have to sign if they're going to use anything uh, of me being on camera. Why yeah. do they want what are you me doing? on camera? Depends what you're doing on camera, I suppose. Uh, hmm. yes. Making an ass out of myself. What were they? What were they filming? That's the question. Is uh, it the peach suit or was it was it out? I don't know. Oh, um, dude, and, really quick side story. I don't yes? know if I'm going to wear the salmon suit anymore. Why? Well, first off, it's hideous. Oh, how dare you, you devil! You are the devil, Tom Rennie. Uh, number one, I go in to get to the new hip doctor that I'm going to go see. I meet a man named Jared Dunn. I don't know if I told this story. I told it on SiriusXM FC Channel 157. Uh, gentleman walks in. I'm supposed to get one more shot before I schedule my appointment, which is going to be in March. Uh, this is December. He goes, hey, I'm Jared Dunn. Nice to meet you. And I go, hey, I'm Brian Dunn. I'm like, I'm Brian. He goes, no, you're not. I go, excuse me? He goes, well, I thought you'd be wearing the salmon suit. I was like, wait, what? And he's like, Dunny, I, I listened to Week in the Tackle. I listened to uh, Counterattack. Like, I love you guys. Like, and the, the, the salmon suit, Rennie got you. So even name dropped you. So shout out to Jared Dunn. The only thing I will point out, he's a Tottenham fan. So yeah. he's allergic to trophies. But outside of that, I didn't make that joke until after that needle yes. exited my body um, because it's too close to the, the jubblies and the bitses and the parts and other him not. You shouldn't mix. have jubblies. What surgery are you having? Well, the, ju- the I guess the jubblies, you know, they're like a, like, you know what a heart looks like? Yeah, Turn I'll them upside say the heart. Down, yeah, and that's what I'll say the heart. <laughs> Turn it upside down. That's what your balls are going to look like next year. <laughs> Joke. Um, Sorry, speaking Tim. of uh, Tottenham Hotspur, uh, let's talk about the Tottenham Hotspur of Germany, Bayern Munich. Um, I- I'm not sure you should be buying uh, Tottenham Hotspur players, should you wish to win a trophy, this year at least. Um, wanted to ask you about the the loss against uh, Neighbourkusen. I always enjoy that. Witzerkusen, uh, mm. uh, second Kusen, if you say it in the perfect German that I just did. Uh, the reason they are called Neverkusen is because they were runners-up in 97, 99, 2000, 2002, and 2011. They have never been German mm-hmm. top flight champions um you wouldn't know that watching Jabby Alonso's side wallop old Bayern at the weekend um five points clear at this particular moment in time some of the football has been really terrific that was the first 90 minute Leverkusen game I've, I've watched all season so look um as ever let's uh let's take that with uh, with the pinch of salt it deserves there are many people that know German football better than me but um they were incredible like mm. first 25 minutes kg from the moment the Bayern Munich low knee, um, Stancic scored the opening goal for Leverkusen, which awesome. was hilarious. Um, in total control of the game. And then that 96th minute Frimpong goal with Neuer doing his South Korea strike a bit. Um, it's time to feel like it might happen, this. 
Uh, yeah, a couple things. I I think I've I've said this here. Um, I was at Bayer Leverkusen in 1998 for three months, uh, October, November, December. It's something that we used to do in MLS because the MLS season wouldn't start until April and it would end in October. And so in the buildup to the Olympics, they would basically like send us out, excuse me, all of us young players. And I was fortunate enough to go to Glasgow Rangers one year. I went to Bayer Leverkusen the next year. Year after that, we kind of did a tour of England and Portugal and just played a bunch of games just to try to keep us developing. It was a really awesome experience. I was there after Frankie Haydock and after the World Cup uh, when Frankie was there. And so I, I got to kind of understand what the mentality and the culture was within the club. And that was also the Christoph Dahm days where if you don't know that story, oh God, go and just search Christoph Dahm, D-A-U-M. And you talk about one of like the most celebrity then political like moments that just exploded all over German national television. Woo, crazy. Um, but yet, listen, the city, for those that haven't been there outside of Cologne, um, it's buyer, the, the facility, buyer drugs. It is a very strong mentality, um, kind of neighborhood area city. Um, and they believe in their style of football and they have for, for years. And Rudy Voller has done, I think an amazing job in the midst of watching all of the clubs kind of yo-yo up and down outside of obviously Bayern Munich um, and now Borussia Dortmund and maybe RB Leipzig to an extent. Uh, but then you throw in, you know, all, all the clubs that have had success and then find themselves relegated. They've always been pretty stable. But when they hired Jabi Alonso, that was for me kind of a, it was a, a, a risk versus reward. Here's this incredible, like top tier world-class footballer his pedigree, his influence, the fact that he played in Germany, um, speaks the language, all of these things. It was his first gig. And he's what he's doing tactically has challenged, I think, a lot of the different teams that he's coming up against. And there's a mentality, and he's got Shaka playing out of his mind. And people will say, well, that's the level, blah, blah, blah. Fair enough. But the reality is that they're going up against a team with virtually unlimited budget, but in a weird transition period, because I think even after the game, and I was I was making this point with Phil Bonney on uh, Counterattack the other day, it almost felt like Thomas Muller was the only one that had the DNA in him that's still there, meaning mm. the Franck Ribéry's, and, and, and with Neuer, Manuel Neuer, and obviously with Yoshua Kimmich and all of that. But there's something different when Thomas Muller has been the guy, been just the DNA of the lifeblood of the club, even in moments when he hasn't been first choice. He's worked himself back in to be kind of the the voice and the leader. And to see his response afterwards, this one felt different from them being dumped out of Pokal. It felt different from them and some of the, uh, the other results that hadn't gone their way. This was, holy shit, we're going to fucking lose the title. Sorry, Tim. Sorry, Tim. That's what it felt like. Um, so couple of things. Number one, if you're Matias Delict, you've got to just, I can't imagine what his relationship is with Timmy Tickles, considering Eric Dyer's starting in a back three. That, that to me wow. is, is just what, um, number two, poor Harry Kane. Mm. If this is the year that they don't win, I know the Bundesliga title, 
Poor Harry Kane. I feel so bad for him. I actually, this is the first year ever I want Bayern to win the league, and it's poor, not going to happen. Poor Harry Kane. Poor Harry. Uh, and then Timmy Tickles. It already. Did you? By the way, did you see that shot of when they cut uh, to Nagelsmann, Nagelsmann yes. behind Rudy Voller? Loving it. Oh my god! Because yeah. now, now you you go back, and I still think they pulled the trigger too soon. I yeah. can understand the complexities. It's Bayern Munich. There's so many different variables that come into play. There's also the politicized angle of. The, the relationship with Nagelsmann was in at the time and with They the just girlfriend. didn't like him. They just didn't like him. The whole, I mean, they, they found a way, didn't they? They found a reason to get rid. But I, I just, I mean, Timmy Tickles is out. There's no doubt about that yeah, at no the chance. end of the season. So, he won't make, I don't think he'll make it. The moment they get 10 points behind, if that happens, he's going to be gone. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd be intrigued to see the level of the level of accountability and professionalism and being a Bayern Munich player Versus, I don't want to play for this guy, mm. and and I think there's going to be a unique dynamic through the end of the season of it's our responsibility as Bayern Munich players versus let's do this without the end as much as we can without the influence of whatever's happening with the manager because Timmy Tickles is going to amp this up. You can see it coming. He's going to dig in. He's going to amp this up, and there's going to be guys that are established players, world class players behind the scenes that are going to start voicing their discomfort and disappointment and frustration mm. and anger. And that's when and like the looks like that type of stuff that that's when it, that's, that's when, you know, things start to really go sideways quickly. If it does go wrong for Timmy Tickles, I hope they give Christoph down a call. I mean, by the look of it, he's probably busy Saturday nights, but he might be available for Sunday games. I don't you did know. A quick, you did a quick yeah. scroll, didn't you? I was reading it. Yeah, I was reading it. And I wish I was his friend in 1996. Uh, listen, we are Crazy, out of time. Right? We are so wild. This is proper. You need to. And if there's not a biography written yet, someone write it because I will read it. Um, and I'm more than happy to join you doing the research for it. Uh, right, we're out of time uh, for this week's Week in the Tackle. Brian Dunseth was with me, Tom Rennie. If you are watching this on YouTube, listen as a podcast. If you were listening as a podcast, you can watch the entire thing on YouTube. Tim Horsey produced the programme, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>